welcome back to Animorph Pages, the daily podcast where we read one more page of Animorphs. This is Animorphs number 8, The Alien, chapter 12, page 140. All but me, and Tobias. Tobias, he would understand, but would he help me? If I did what I was planning, would he help, and could I trust him? I raised my tail and opened my main eyes. I knew the place where Tobias slept. I found him easily. He stood with his sharp talons wrapped around a branch. Tobias, I called. Huh? What? Axe, what's the matter? Nothing is the matter, but I have a question. I hope it's a good one. I was sleeping. Tobias, are you my friend? That's what you woke me up to ask? He opened his wings and seemed to be stretching. Axe, we are the two strangest creatures on this planet. A freaky, four-eyed, half-deer, half-scorpion, centaur-looking alien, and a bird with the mind of a person. We fought side by side. We've nearly been killed several times. Of course I'm your friend. It surprised me that he would answer so quickly, as if there was never any doubt what the answer would be. That's good, I said. Will you keep a secret, even from Prince Jake? Even from Rachel? Tobias was silent for a while. Is it something that would hurt my friends? No. Then I'd keep a secret, Tobias said. I swear. What do you swear by, Tobias? I would have to be sure. What promise would you never break? Axe, you know I was there when your brother was killed. Yes, I know. You were the last one to leave him. Yeah, I don't know why, Tobias said. But something about him... I can't explain it, but I was drawn to him. I wanted to listen to him. I wanted to hear everything he said. It was like like he was a magnet or something. Like I couldn't pull away. Until he ordered me to leave. I can't explain it. You don't need to explain, I said softly. Even here, among aliens, Elfangor was the hero. You asked what I'd swear by? I'll swear by him. By Prince Elfangor. And so... I told Tobias of my plan. That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Nick. And once again, this is Animor Pages, the show where we read one more page of Animorphs and not Animor Phages, the show where we discuss our desire to consume an Animorph. Indeed. Uh, Jordana, regrettably, has been trapped in her, her uh, cockroach morph, so she won't be able to join us today. We're working on a solution to the problem. Probably it'll require some kind of Andalite artifact. Yes, yes. Some, or perhaps some sort of time loop travel so that she can reacquire her own morph. Indeed, indeed. Something that leaps out to me on this page, like I think the, the real kind of emotional meat of it is on the back half where Tobias chooses to swear by uh, Elfangor. And he has that little soliloquy where he's he's talking about how he was drawn to Elfangor. He was like, he can't really explain it. And I think that this is one more uh, data point in the uh, complex web of data points that we've been tracking since we started the first Animorphs book uh, that kind of positions Tobias as like a queer character. Uh, He's, you know, for for a variety of reasons, but I think one of them is, is his kind of like fascination with this alien prince that he can't really explain. Well, I think, uh, I certainly think that's accurate. And I think that Tobias in a way is a stand in for, for queerness as a whole, like certainly like his rejection of his human form, uh, and him sort of wrestling with what it means to, to be 
unstuck in a body, I think is a metaphor for queerness because when these books came out in 1990, this one in particular came out in 1997, I don't think uh, these novels were like novels of this age group were kind of explicitly dealing with those kind of themes just yet. Yeah. But you I agree have, with that. You couldn't have but, one of these kids be gay, but you could have him uh, kind of, because remember he didn't choose to be stuck in the bird morph. He, you know, that happened to him by accident. So it's like something that he couldn't control that kind of separates him from the rest of society and even separates him from the rest of his friends who he's, you know, who are like his only friends really. He was, and like, even before he gets the bird morph, he's positioned as like socially the odd one out. He's kind of like a weird loner that the other like kids don't really know what to do with. Yeah. And And, we talked about this, but even before he gets trapped in it, he seems to prefer staying in bird form to mm -hmm. in human form. And there's like lots of hints about his like, his home life not being so good. Like his dad doesn't ever come looking for him, right? He lives with his single dad. And as I recall, he's like kind of glad to see the back of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the the extent of the tragedy that is present in this series is uh, really can't be overstated. And the horrors that they're forced to witness. Um, I, I, I think this can segue nicely into what I want to talk about, which is that, you know, we're eight books in and Elfang or his presence is still very keenly felt uh, throughout the series. And especially these two characters, obviously these two characters, uh, Aximili and, and Tobias are probably the two who are, or at least Aximili certainly is the closest to Elfangor um, as his, you know, he's an Andalite and I believe he's Elfangor's nephew. He's Elfangor's brother. Is he his brother? Oh, I had forgotten yeah. that. Oh, I, I guess I always thought of him as an uncle. <laughs> no, he's like he's his like he's the elder brother that he's always trying to like, you know, live up to. Well, there you have it. But yeah, so I mean, certainly for Axe, but throughout the entire series, Alfinger's presence is is keenly felt. Um, this book in particular, I know we haven't got there yet, but uh, there is a conversation toward the end where uh, Axe meets and uh, and has a conversation with Visser Three's host, Alaran Semitor Koras, um, as the Yurk has left the body. Uh, and so we we get a fair like some of the rarest andalite to andalite communication. There isn't a ton of it uh, in this book. Do they ever deal with the the reason that the andalites aren't like in orbit around Earth, like helping them fight? Like, do they ever explain why the andalites are are uh, are missing? I, I mean, I think that the the out of narrative reason is because then you wouldn't have a story. I think the in narrative reason is that. I'm trying to remember. I feel like it's one of two things. It's either that the Andalites are stretched so thin across the galaxy fighting on all the different fronts of the war that they don't have the like the manpower to spare. I I also think it's possible that um, they don't know that the Yurks have already invaded Earth uh, and Elfangor is, Elfangor is going to like warn the rest of the Andalites, hey, they've taken another planet um, and that uh, you know, that all got forestalled because his ship got shot down and he was killed. I think that the third possibility is that the end, and I think, you know, I think we'll maybe see this as the series goes on because we do eventually get some more Andalite char- like recurring characters. But I think we'll see as it goes on that the Andalites are, you know, kind of xenophobic and don't care all that much about humanity. Elfangor was like a rare exception because Axe is also like when they first meet Axe, he's kind of standoffish with them. Uh, until he like he and the and the human animorphs kind of learn to trust each other more. Mm-hmm. This book opens with a schism uh, between 
the rest of the Animorphs and Axe because the previous book in in which they destroyed the the Velique, you know, they think that it's going to be a a victory for them. And Axe withheld the knowledge that the Yorks would simply slaughter the the controllers who had freed themselves. So this book, you know, throughout this whole book, as we've been talking about, Axe is is struggling with like his, I don't know, disregard for humans. And do you think that's why he and Tobias are so close here is that they both kind of feel separate from the I, rest of the, the humans? I do think that the reason that Axe and Tobias bond, and you could argue that this is another kind of like queer coded relationship is that they're the ones who are the most unlike uh, ordinary human beings and most unlike the other Animorphs. Uh, you know, as he points out, one of them is a person's mind trapped in a bird's body, and uh, the other one is a like blue deer, scorpion tail alien. They'll never really be human beings again. Uh, if they ever were, they kind of only have each other. Uh, and there is that kind of like small town, like queer kids who find each other energy to it. Um, so I don't know if it's about like acts doing war crimes. Uh, that they bond i think it's i think it's more about that but uh, as you point out like one of the things that always tantalized me about this series when i was a kid is that i loved all the alien lore like i loved learning everything i could about what the andalites were doing what the taxons and the hork were like you know what what is the yurk's big plan and k applegate like i think does a good job of making all that stuff really tantalizing and giving you just enough to let your imagination run wild. And then uh, it's like, you know, a, a book gasm when you finally get to read like the hork Chronicles. And there's a whole book that's just from the perspective of some hork or some Andalites or Yorks or what have you. You know, we're, we're in one of those sequences that's a bit more interpersonal and a bit less um, action heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this book is a bit of a solo adventure compared to some of the others. I feel like maybe, is this the first one from Axe's perspective? I believe it is. And I, I wonder if that's simply a function of the fact that because he's like the only survivor of his species on this planet, Axe is, like he doesn't have a supporting cast, right? If you have a book from from Cassie's perspective or Marco or Rachel or, or Prince Jake, like they all have families who represent a supporting cast and they are also more likely to just like be in school, like hanging out with the other Animorphs. Uh, So you can have those like kind of like social subplots happening. Are Rachel and Marco going to get together? Like how's Jake and Cassie's relationship progressing? But with Axe and with Tobias, because they are separate from like society, they are kind of the only two characters you can have them have a social scene with. And I think that may, maybe is like kind of a, a challenge for K.A. Applegate to like make the parts of the book where it's not the Animorphs, you know, acquiring a new morph and going on a new adventure equally compelling. I seem to recall that in one of the later books that's from Tobias's perspective, this takes on kind of a uh, a sort of like body horror dimension because Tobias starts to like lose himself in the instincts of the hawk body that he's trapped in. And he starts to like, want to like take a hawk mate. And that's the like kind of social tension in that story. Hmm. Well, I can't wait till we get there. Mm -hmm. That'll certainly be steamy. Yeah. That's like book 18 or something. (laughs) The nest. 
Uh, really quite dense. I'm glad we're doing this reread because there's so much that I had forgotten and it's so nice to rediscover it. I was pleased to like, I, I, I think I've mentioned on one of our many other podcasts that I tried to reread the Redwall series and uh, got stonewalled, no pun intended, because I found the prose too simplistic. Uh, I found it like unpleasant to read, um, which, you know, I don't blame uh, Brian Jakes for because obviously it's, it's like YA and it's pitched a little bit simpler especially considering how dense those books end up getting. Um, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I've been enjoying this reread and I enjoyed this page. I found it, uh, you know, like well-written and uh, dense and not, doesn't talk down or simplify the language. I always appreciated that. Yeah. It, it's very direct. It's very like uh, action verb noun. Um, it's, you know, there's not a lot of, um, purple prose happening, which I think is just something that becomes necessary when you're writing this kind of middle grade fiction. Although I I do want to say, and I know I've said it many times before on this podcast that we've been doing for many years, but I do love the convention of uh, communicating to us that they're using mind speak by just having the little uh, pointy brackets on either side. Uh, I always remember thinking that was cool. And I love when authors are willing to let the text itself tell part of the story. I think that that's a thing that they've borrowed from the visual language of comic books and like the, the way different uh, speech balloons or, or, or other word balloons communicate different things about the narrative. Uh, I, I really am glad that Kay Applegate chose to do that. Well, I don't know about you, but I think that uh, I'm running out of gas in the tank and maybe it's incumbent upon us to see find Jordana before she like gets stepped on or she scuttles under a fridge and can't find her way out. Yes, so I'll go check all the motels I've been putting out for her. <laughs> all right, uh, and we will hope that Jordana has not been turned into a smear of goo on tomorrow's page of the morphs. <laughs>